Hey there, welcome. This is Daniel M. from Beulah Alliance Church. As we open up the scriptures together, I hope this helps you know Jesus deeply and be known by him fully. Enjoy the message. Well, today was going to be the last day of our series that we've been, well, where we've been exploring how to stand against the schemes of the devil. Uh, but as I was preparing this message, I found that there's too much to cover and not enough time. Uh, so we're going to extend this series by another week uh, so that we can focus specifically on the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God today, and then spend all of next week focusing in on prayer. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to read from verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now you may not know this about me, uh, but I'm not much of a swordsman. <laughs> uh, I know how to use a knife to cut, to chop, and to julienne, and, and there's even the chiffonade. Um, and I've played enough video games to know that there are a lot of different types of swords for different types of purposes. Uh, I have a black belt in Taekwondo, uh, but no, I do not know how to wield a sword, hence I'm not a swordsman. So I'm curious, when Paul says in Ephesians 6 to take up the sword of the Spirit, um, I don't know how many of you are swordsmen, but I wonder what comes to mind. Uh, here's a picture of all the different types, well, not all the different types of swords, but common types. Uh, and there's a lot, right? I mean, you got the cutlass, which is the pirate sword. Uh, you got the claymore, which is the heavy Scottish two-handed sword. You got the gladius, which is the ancient Roman foot soldier sword. And the katana, which is a Japanese samurai sword with a single-edged blade curved. And, you know, you just keep on going down. There's so many different ones. So when you look at this list, which sword do you think Paul was referring to? It was the gladius. The gladius, the one that looked like this, is a short sword, a dagger of sorts designed for combat, close combat, to thrust, cut, and chop. So why does this matter? Well, as we've been talking about being in this spiritual battle and taking up and putting on the full armor of God, the sword of the spirit is our weapon to stand against the evil one in battle to stand against his temptations and attacks. Now you might be wondering at this point, but Daniel, isn't that what all the other armor are for? Like we've just gone through the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet fitted with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. And, and I've heard multiple times that these pieces of armor are to help us stand against the flaming arrows of the evil one. And yes, that's true. But in battle, uh, arrows are only the first wave of attack, right? After the arrows are shot, what happens next? Foot soldiers come, right? The rest of the army comes to attack. The enemy always sends in infantry for close combat battle. And so that's when we are called to take out the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God just like Jesus did when he was in the desert. So um, take a look at Matthew chapter four. I wanna read a few verses to you here because what, he, what Jesus does here in Matthew four is what we need to learn how to do, to take out the sword of the spirit when we are in close hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
So verse one, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. Do you see here how Jesus responded to the temptations and attacks of the evil one? He didn't cover his ears and go, na, 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 I can't hear you, right? He didn't say that. He wasn't like, oh, I don't, I don't want to hear this. Uh, God, will you just take him away? Help me focus on something else. Right? He doesn't, that's not how he responds. He responded by taking out the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Henry Nouwen in his book, In the Name of Jesus, calls these three temptations, the temptation to be uh, relevant, spectacular, and powerful. So let's walk through each. The temptation to be relevant. In verse three, the devil tempts Jesus to be relevant by telling him to turn these stones into bread. What the devil is saying here is essentially, hey, Jesus, the people need bread. So if you do this, you will be needed. People will always come to you. They'll never leave you. You will always be in style. When it comes time for a promotion, it's yours. Likes, comments, shares, yours. Attention, yours. Love, yours. So show your worth and prove that you are what you can do and turn these stones into bread. You know what, Jesus could have done it. After all, he is God. But instead of falling into the temptation of the evil one to base his identity in what he can do, he instead cut the temptation of the evil one. And how did he do that? By taking out the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, right? He said, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus here recited Deuteronomy 8.3, and by doing that, he cut the allure of temptation. Well, the next temptation is the temptation to be spectacular, and we see it in verse 5 and 6 that the devil tempts Jesus by taking him up to the top of the temple and saying, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Because doesn't your scripture say that angels will protect you? The devil is saying, everyone's going to see you and notice you if, you if you throw yourself down. 
And you know what, Jesus, if you do that, I mean, your scriptures say that, that God won't let you hit the ground. He'll send his angels to come and rescue you if you do that. And, and, and you're the son of God. And, and if you do that, and, I mean, you are going to be the talk of the town, not just now, but forever. You will never be forgotten. Everyone will be impressed. You will be a star. You will be a hero. Isn't that tricky? I mean, in this temptation, the devil doesn't just dare Jesus to do something, but he actually uses the scriptures just like Jesus in this hand-to-hand combat. The devil cited Psalm 91, 11 to 12. The only problem is he cited it out of context, <laughs> uh, which is why Jesus then took out the sword of the spirit and cited Deuteronomy 6.16. And he said, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Boom, right? I mean, the seduction of the enemy. And we can't imagine that when the devil did this and took him to this place and showed him all these things, we can't imagine that it was easy for Jesus because he was tempted in every way that we were, yet he was without sin. So you have to imagine that a lot of these different thoughts must have come into his mind, but instead of just ignoring the evil one, he took out the sword of the spirit for close hand-to-hand combat. The last temptation we see here is the temptation to be powerful. And we see in verse eight and nine that the devil then takes, seeing that those two instances didn't work, he, he took Jesus to the, very high, the top of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, right? And he tempts him and he says, hey, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all of these things, right? The devil here is saying, everything will be yours just like that. You don't need to suffer You don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to be a sacrificial lamb for everyone's sins. You don't need to do any of the things that you came on earth to do. Rather, if you just fall down and worship me, everything will be yours. All power will be yours. Political power, social power, economic power, spiritual power. It'll all be yours if you do this. You will be in charge. Now, the interesting thing about this temptation in particular is that Jesus actually did have all the power. Like he did in fact have all of it and he was going to have it all once again. But then we see here in order to save humanity, in Philippians 2, we read that he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So in response to the devil's temptation, once again, Jesus takes out the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and he recites Deuteronomy 6.13 by saying, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And in doing so, he cut the temptation of the evil one with the sword of the spirit. Friends, uh, this last piece of armor that we're talking about, this sword of the spirit, this gladius, uh, this isn't just some decorative sword that's on the hilt of our belts. 
that, uh, you know, like the ones that King Charles III and Prince William carry around, right? I mean, their swords are probably more expensive than our houses. Uh, and, but, but the swords that we are called to carry, they're not these ones. They're not just for pomp and circumstance. No, the sword of the spirit that we are called to carry are, is, is, is how God has given us these swords to stand against the evil one's temptations and attacks. Just consider what it says in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Friends, God has given us this double-edged sword to fight, to stand against the evil one's temptations and attacks. So the next time you're tempted, do what Jesus did. Don't just have your sword nicely displayed on your bookshelf. And when you're tempted, just say, no, 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 I can't hear you. And try to focus on something else. No, do what Jesus did. Use the sword of the spirit to cut the temptation of the evil one. So for example, the next time you're tempted with lust, use the sword of the spirit by fighting back with Matthew 5.28. In those instances, say, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or say, Colossians 3.2, take the sword of the spirit out. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. And watch the temptations of the evil one begin fading away because you've combated him with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Or if you're tempted to cheat, lie, steal, or deceive, take the sword of the spirit out and say Psalm 119.37, turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless. Give me life in your ways. Or if you're tempted to pursue things that you know you shouldn't, take out 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now in these these instances when you're tempted, uh, don't try to remember, oh, what was that verse again? What was that, what was that verse? Or, or, or try to take out your notes. I, I, I don't quite remember. And, and you're just going to, God, would you show me what verse? And don't try to do that. <laughs> Instead, memorize the word of God. Hide the word of God in your heart. Psalm 119, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, now you might be sitting here and, and being like, Daniel, like, I used to be able to memorize <laughs> Uh, But ever since Google came around, like I just, I can't, I can't like memorize as well as I used to. And and I've tried, I've tried, but it's just, it's hard. Well, here's the beautiful thing about the word of God and and hiding it in your heart. There's techniques to memorize, right? You read it over and over again. You can pray through it. You can write it out. Uh, You can kind of put it on a sticky note, put it on your bathroom mirror. There are many different ways and tactics, techniques to memorize. But here's the thing. At any given moment, you don't need to be able to recite all the memory verses you memorize. That's not proof of memorization. What we do in the act of memorizing is we are actually hiding God's word in our heart. And you know what the amazing thing is? In those moments of temptation, the Holy Spirit will bring it up. He will. He always does when we hide his word in our hearts. 
That's how we're called to stand against the evil one, by hiding his word in our hearts. And then it's not just enough to recite scripture in that moment, like it's a magic spell or something like that. No, we got to recite scripture and then live it out. Psalm 119, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. We cut the allure and the temptation of the evil one with the power of the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and then we are called to live it out so that we can walk in victory. So if God gives us the sword of the spirit to to help us stand against the evil one in this spiritual battle that we're in, uh, then, then shouldn't that mean we should automatically win? Like anytime the evil one sends his arrows against us and battles, doesn't this mean we have all the armor? Like we're equipped. We can stand against. We'll never lose. Right? Is that, is that what we read about here? Well, kind of. But the fact of the matter is, while you might have a sword of the spirit, some of you may not know where your sword is. Because it's been so long since you've used it. Or maybe you know where it is, but it, it's so dull because you haven't sharpened it. Or maybe you have kept it in really good condition, but you've never learned how to wield it in battle. So that's what I want to spend the rest of our time walking through uh, all of these questions together with you. I want us to investigate the condition of our swords so that we can learn how to best use the sword of the spirit. Okay, so here's our first question. Do you have a sword, right? Do you know where your sword is? In other words, what is the Bible? Now, am I asking this question? I'm not asking if you have a Bible, and I'm not asking if you know that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. I'm not asking if you know that every year over 100 million copies of the Bible are sold or, or given away. And I'm not asking if you know that the Bible app, you version, that Bible app has been downloaded more than 500 million times. That's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking instead is whether you know what the Bible is. Like, what is it? Like, do you know that the Bible is God's word to us, that it's his letter to us, that it's his guide for our lives, for right living, for living a joy-filled, meaning-filled, purpose-filled life? Do you know that that's why God gave us his word? Do you know that the Bible is a collection of 66 books written over 1,500 years by kings and prophets and priests and scholars and, and poets and, and, and tax collectors and, and fishermen and, and the list continues to go on and on? And do you know that the Bible is written and made up of different genres, different literary genres like, like, like poetry and and prophecy, and and narrative, history, parables, and the like. So what this all means is that the Bible is 100% the work of human authors, and also 100% inspired by God. How is that possible for the Bible to be both 100% the work of human authors and also 100% inspired by God? Well, while analogies are, most analogies are imperfect, here's one that might help. Take a look at this picture. This is a picture of the Guggenheim Museum in New York. 
In June 1943, the architect Frank Lloyd Wright was asked to design a building um, that was unlike any other museum in the entire world. So here's a picture of it, right? He was the inspiration of this iconic and unique museum in the heart of New York City. But he never laid a stone of it. There's so many builders that helped put this together and that worked on this being a thing and bringing it to life. But Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect, though he was the inspiration of it all, he never laid a stone. That's why it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Or in the NIV, it says all scripture is God-breathed. So just like God breathed the breath of life into humans, he breathed the breath of life into the Bible, into these authors, to these human authors as they wrote what the Holy Spirit led them to write. That's why the Bible isn't like any other book out there. That's why the Bible is living and effective. And when you read it on one day and you read the same passage a year later, or six months later, God can speak differently through his word based on your circumstances because it's living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. Okay, so if that's what the Bible is, then our next question is whether or not you trust that the Bible is what it claims to be. In other words, how sharp is your sword? Hey, you may have a sword, but is it dull? <laughs> like when's the last time you've sharpened your sword to know what it is and how to use it. In other words, do you trust your sword? Would you trust to use it in battle? Do you trust the Bible? Now we could spend days unpacking all the arguments for and against the trustworthiness of the Bible, but for the sake of time, I just wanna zoom in on the trustworthiness of the gospels, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and here's why. Because if the gospels are trustworthy, then Jesus is in fact who he said he is. And as it relates to the Old Testament, if Jesus trusted the Old Testament as God's word, then do you see how we can also trust the Old Testament as God's word? You see how that logic works? So yes, we could look at all of the evidence for an entire Bible, but if we just look at the trustworthiness of the gospels, that actually leads to arguments for the trustworthiness of the entire scriptures. So here are a few of the most compelling arguments for the trustworthiness of the gospels, and they're from Neil, Neil Shenvey's book, Why Believe? The first reason is the reliability of manuscript transmission. Now, there are critics that say we can't trust the Bible because it's like copies of copies of copies, and, and they'll bring up that analogy, uh, you, know, you know the telephone game? where uh, you, you whisper something into the person's ear next to you and then they say it to the person next and it just keeps on going all the way until the end. And, and it's funny because the last message isn't always the same as the first one and it's just funny to see how it changes, right? So critics say that, well, because we only have copies of copies of copies of the Bible, it's like the telephone game, you can't trust it. But here's the thing, um, 
every single book written before the invention of the printing press, that's the exact same situation for all those books too. We only have copies of copies of copies of those books. And when you look at all of those documents, pre-printing press, the New Testament is by far the most reliable and attested historical document. Second to the New Testament is Homer's Iliad. Okay, now take a look at this chart. Um, look at how the two of them compare. Now remember, Homer's Iliad isn't the 10th best attested historical document. It's the second best attested document. And look at how they compare. There's, we have 5,800 copies of the New Testament manuscript versus 1,800 of Homer's Iliad. The time between the original writing of the New Testament and the oldest complete manuscript is 300 years for the New Testament versus 1,600 years for Homer's Iliad. And the time between the original writing of the New Testament and the oldest fragment is 50 years for the New Testament versus 400 years for Homer's Iliad. So then why don't people critique the reliability of Homer's Iliad, right? I bet you've never heard of that. Yet you see the New Testament is far more reliable than that. It is the most reliable manuscript. And you know, it's true that there are variants between different um, manuscripts in the New Testament and, and there are some differences between them, but the vast majority of them are just kind of, they're, they're inadvertent ones like accidental slips of the pen or, or misspelled words or uh, inadvertent additions or accidental omissions, like those sorts of things are what make up the variances between our New Testament manuscripts. So that's the reliability of manuscript transmission. The next one is corroboration from non-Christian authors. Now this argument is fun because uh, it goes like this. If you were to burn every Bible and every book written by every Christian in all of history, and you were to only look at books written by non-Christians within a century of Jesus's death, what would you find out about Christianity? What would you find out about Jesus? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Well, here's what you would find if you only read non-Christian sources from 100 years of Jesus's death you would discover that there's a Jewish man named Jesus who lived in the first century Judea, that he had a brother named James, that he was called the Christ or Messiah by his followers, that he did some kind of seemingly miraculous deeds, that he was brought to the Roman authorities by the Jewish religious leaders and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that the movement he founded was first checked by his execution but then later emerged as far as Rome, the early Christians chanted to Jesus as if to a God and refused to worship other gods, even on the pain of death. And Christians met regularly, shared a communal meal and pledged to live moral lives. In other words, what you would find out about him is what we read in the New Testament by and large. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus isn't a legend. Jesus isn't a fictional made up character because we see corroboration from non-Christian authors. Okay, now, um, if you look at all the other reasons that we should trust the Gospels, you got corroboration from geography, from archaeology, from the Jewish context, and from something called onomastics, which is fascinating as a field of study. It's relatively new. 
onomastics is the study of the history and origin of names, and that actually proves the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts. If you want to dig into any of these, you can pick up a copy of Neil Shenvey's book, Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. Okay, so when it comes to our swords, we've asked two questions, right? Do you have a sword? And number two, uh, how sharp is it? So our last question as it relates to our swords is, do you know how to use it? In other words, do you know how to read the Bible? Now, when it comes to reading the Bible, there's a vast range of skills. Uh, maybe you're like this guy on the left when it comes to the Bible, <laughs> kind of run away. Or, or, or maybe you are skilled in wielding the sword and, and you are like these guys in The Prince's Bride. This is a fun clip. I wanted to show all six minutes of it, but <laughs> it's too long. Be overkill. This is that scene, if you watch the movie, where it starts, where, where he says, I, my name is Anibo Montoya, right? You have killed my father, now prepare to die. And now they're battling and seeing who will win. Just throws his sword to the other one with one hand. <laughs> so, like I said, having a sword is not the same thing as using one, right? Like, just because you have one in the hilt of your belt doesn't mean you know how to do what they just did. So, when it comes to reading the Bible, you may have one, but do you know how to read it? Think about a spectrum on one side where it's, you know, you read the Bible devotionally. How do you read the Bible devotionally? And do you enjoy doing that? And on the other side of this spectrum is reading the Bible so that you can teach it. On this spectrum of familiarity and comfortability and confidence in reading the Bible, where would you place yourself? Well, for the time we have left together, I want to walk through uh, two sets of uh, recommendations or, 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 I guess, advice on how we can approach the Bible, okay? Um, and, and the reason I want to do this, I, I, want to, I want us to talk about five ways that we can devotionally read the Bible better, and then five ways that we can, uh, recommendations when we study the Bible. And the reason why I want to share both of these sides of this spectrum is because I want every single one of us to leave today knowing how to better use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay, so let's start with five steps to devotionally reading the Bible. Number one, be intentional about it. Reading the Bible devotionally is something that we can all do and that we should all be doing because the Word of God is our spiritual food. So this one is all about making a plan and a place to read the Word. And, and that could be in the morning, in bed, uh, before you get up, or it could be uh, with a cup of coffee in your living room or, or before or after lunch or before you go to bed. It doesn't matter when, uh, but the first point is all about just being intentional about reading the Word. Number two, if you don't know where to start, start with one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or read a, uh, find a Bible reading plan. If you have the Bible app on your phones, uh, the U version, then there's so many different Bible reading plans, like topical ones on, on faith 
and uh, on, on leadership, on wisdom, on being single, on dating, on marriage, on divorce, on all different moments of our life, being a grandparent. Like there's Bible reading plans on everything. And then there's also Bible reading plans where you can read through the Bible and in a year, six months, 90 days, 30 days. There's so many great resources that we have access to for free. Uh, we really don't have an excuse not to use it. Number three, pray before, during, and after you read the Bible. Ask God to give you eyes to see what you're about to read, a mind to understand, a heart to feel what's going on, right? Pray for this. Pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit and that he would speak to you and through you. You know, this point is all about learning how to feed ourselves spiritually. I mean, just, just think about this for a moment, okay? Like if a 60-year-old still lived off of a diet of milk, that'd be weird, right? Like, like how can you survive off of milk? Or if uh, a 45-year-old was still being fed, spoon-fed by their mom, even though they had a full set of teeth, but just was too lazy to chew, I mean, that'd be bizarre, wouldn't it? Like something's up if that's the case. Well, in the same way, we need to learn how to feed ourselves spiritually so that we don't constantly try to live off of a diet of milk, but so that we can eat the solid food that is there for us. Number four, live it out. That's it. Uh, that's, that's the end of the point. I mean, don't just read it, actually live it out. And five, talk about it with others. Because when you study the Bible and read the Bible and, and talk about it with others, it's so beautiful because there's depth upon depth upon depth that happens as we learn together. That's why the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron. That's why it's great to be in a Beulah community. Okay, so those are five steps to reading the Bible devotionally better and, and learning how we can feed ourselves to grow. My open prayer is that we don't just stop there as a church family. I, I want all of us to learn how to read the Bible devotionally, but also I want us to all learn how to read the Bible so that we can then teach it to others. Now that might mean for some of you, you are, God is going to call you to, to circumstances where you teach in front of a large group of people like this. But I think for the majority, it's about learning how to teach the Bible to someone else or to a group of people. I think it would be so incredible if we would learn how to understand and interpret and teach the Bible. Because in the, uh, we read that as followers of Christ, we're not just called to be disciples, we're actually all called to be disciple makers, which means we need to learn how to understand, interpret, and we all need to learn how to teach the Bible. So uh, I want us to do that together as we walk through these five reminders. And, and obviously this isn't a systematic way to study the Bible because we don't have time for that. But, but here are a few reminders to keep in mind when you study the Bible. Okay, number one, don't try to discover what no one has ever seen before. I want this to be left up just for a little bit so that we let that sink in. When you study the Bible, uniqueness is not the goal. Because here's the thing, if you discover something that theologians have never discovered before, like don't be excited, be leery, because you may be on a slippery slope to starting your own cult. 
point of studying the Bible is to find the plain meaning of the text. Don't try to look for some hidden meaning. Look for the plain meaning. Number two, every reader is an interpreter. We all have blind spots. I mean, that's why they're called blind spots because you don't see what's in your blind spot. Who can see what's in your blind spot? Another person, right? So that's why we need to study the Bible together and recognize that our interpretation may not be the right interpretation. We need checks and balances in and around us. Number three, the Bible isn't a series of commands written without any sort of context. It's not a fortune cookie, right? What we read in the Bible is that it was written within the particular circumstances and events of human history. So if we want to discover the original meaning so that we can then understand what that means for us today, we need to learn how to discover the original meaning, which is called exegesis. And that leads us to our next point. Ask questions of context and content. The key to good studying, the key to good interpretation and teaching is asking the right questions of the Bible. And there's two categories, those questions of context and questions of content. Context is like historic, there's historical context. For example, uh, when was this written? Where was this written? Who was this written to? Why? What was the culture of the author? What was the culture of their readers? You know, you get, you get the, the idea, historical context sorts of questions. So we got to ask those. And then we got to ask questions of literary context. Like, what's the point? Why is the author saying this? Why are they saying this? And then why are they saying what they're saying next? Right? These are the sorts of questions we need to ask, context questions when we read the Bible. The next set of questions we need to ask are questions of content. And this is probably what comes most naturally to us, right? Like, what does this word mean? I don't know what this word means. Wait, wasn't this word used somewhere else? Why was it used there and not here? Why was it used there and here, right? These are the sorts of questions we can ask in studying the Bible. And the last step is to use good tools. Uh, to help in studying the Bible, you just need good tools. And the, and the best place to start is having three good translations of the Bible. Three good English translations. In fact, sometimes it's great to look in and study the, the, the original languages and all of that, but really, if you have three good translations of the Bible, you can get to the original meaning of the text really well. Okay, for example, um, and I'm not, uh, we don't have time to look at all the different ways that Bibles have been translated, but think about it from a spectrum of, of um, accuracy to readability, okay? Uh, every Bible falls on some place in this spectrum of accuracy to readability. So have a Bible on this side that heavily emphasizes accuracy, like the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, or the New King James Version. Okay, so these are good translations that are sometimes harder to read, right, because they're on the accuracy side and on the readability side. They're going for accuracy of kind of word-to-word -word sort of translation. It's great, for accuracy, it's just sometimes hard to read. So have one of these and then have another one on this side that heavily favors readability, like the message paraphrase or the New Living Translation. These are great on readability, right? They're so easy to read, uh, but they translate more paragraph to paragraph or idea to idea, not word for word. And then have a translation in the middle, like the one that I like preaching from, the CSB, the, the Christian Standard Bible. The NIV is also a good one in the middle where it balances readability and accuracy. Okay, when, so when studying the Bible, use these three different versions. And, and the good news, it's all free on the internet, right? 
uh, on, or on the Bible app. If you want to go a step further in studying the Bible, get a good study Bible. Because in the study Bible, it gives you cross-references and, and explains difficult passages. And, and the best part of study Bibles, and this is what you want to look for first, is the introduction to every book of the Bible. Because what the introduction will do is it'll help you understand, the, remember questions of context and content? It'll help you understand historical context, literary context, and the content in and through the notes. Okay, so that's great. Now, let's say you have all those and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm good. I have all this. I, I don't use it often, but, but I have those tools. You know, start using them. And if you want to go another level deeper, buy a Bible dictionary because a Bible dictionary will give you great historical context and content for what you are studying. And, and then after that, you can buy commentaries. There's so many different commentaries on every book of the Bible. But here's the thing. If you buy commentaries... Use them last when studying the Bible. Never start with commentaries because commentaries are people's interpretations of the text and they have their own blind spots just like you and I have our own blind spots. Okay, so commentaries aren't the Bible. Start with the Bible, walk through, use the Bible to interpret the Bible, use these tools and then use commentaries to check the work that you did. That's what they're used for. And maybe there's something that you didn't find and you can go off on that and, and learn more through these commentaries. All right, so we've covered a lot today, right? Uh, and, and the reason I wanted to cover all the things that we covered today is because uh, more than anything else, I want us Beulah Church family to learn how to spiritually feed ourselves. That's why. And to spiritually feed ourselves, we need to have confidence not only in taking the sword of the spirit off of our shelves, dusting it off, uh, but sharpening it and then knowing how to use it. And it's only then that we'll be able to wield it in battle and fight against and stand against all the flaming arrows and the attacks of the evil one in close hand-to-hand -hand combat. So I wanna leave you with this analogy. Uh, there's this analogy in scripture uh, that we often use in our churches, uh, that the, the, the pastor is the shepherd and, and that the congregation are the sheep. Now, there's nothing wrong with that analogy. In fact, it's very biblical. Uh, but here's the problem with it. Uh, most of us have never shepherded sheep, <laughs> right? Uh, so we think we understand what it actually means. Um, and we think we understand, oh yeah, well, the shepherd's task is to feed the sheep. So we assume, oh, I want good meat. I want to be fed. I'm not being fed. I want to be, I want, I want to eat today, right? And, and we have this kind of, these false notions of the purpose around preaching and the purpose of what a pastor is called to do because we're like, shepherd are supposed to feed their sheep. Uh, but if you know what shepherd actually do, they don't, the only sheep they ever hand feed is, are, are, are sick ones. What, she, what shepherd actually do, they do feed their sheep, but they feed their sheep by bringing their sheep to a pasture so that the sheep can feed themselves. So when you think about that analogy, that's, our, that's my hope. That's our hope at Beulah for every single one of us, that we would be a church family that learns how to feed ourselves. Not so that it ends with ourselves, because if we can feed ourselves solid food, then you know what that means? That means we can then feed others around us, sick sheep, 
baby sheep who don't know how to feed themselves. We can be a part. Every single one of us can be a part of doing that because we're not just called to be disciples, but we're all called to be disciple makers. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we want to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Would you show us this week how to feed ourselves? Would you show us this week how to use the sword of the Spirit in battle? And would you fill us with your Spirit as we do so? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, and thank you for giving. Your giving makes this podcast possible and helps us share this message with others. If today's message made you realize that you need to take your next step with Jesus, we'd love to help you with that. The easiest way to do that is by going to beulah.family on your browser. On that page, you'll find our social media links, links to upcoming events, and a link to give. And don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast. We'll see you soon.